0: entitled Rosicrucianism and Modern Initiation. Uh, It also has some other uh, lectures in it, translated by Mary Adams and Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 2, I believe of 10 lectures, given in Dornock on the 5th of January, 1924. Yesterday I began to speak to you of our search for knowledge of the Spirit during the 9th and 10th centuries after Christ. We learned how such efforts were still seriously undertaken as late as the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, and I endeavored to tell you something of their results. Today I should like to touch particularly on their historical aspect. We have to remember that the actual mysteries of ancient times were of such a nature and character that in the mystery centers an actual meeting with the gods could take place. In the evening lectures recently given during the Christmas conference, I described how the human being who was an initiate or was a neophyte did truly meet with the gods, and it was actually possible in those times to discover places which, if I might employ such a pedantic expression, by their very locality were expressly fitted to induce such a meeting with the gods. From such centers came the impulses for all the ancient civilizations. Gradually, however, they disappeared, and from the fourth century onward they are no longer to be found in their original form. Here and there we may come upon survivals, but the knowledge is no longer in the rigorous old form. Not that initiation ever ceased. It was the form in which the candidates found their way that changed. I have already indicated how things were in the Middle Ages. I have told you how there were individuals here and there living simple, humble, unpretentious lives who did not gather around them a circle of official pupils in one particular place, but whose pupils were scattered in various directions in accordance with karma, with the karma, that is, of humanity or with the karma of some folk or nation. I have described one such instance and what I said about Johannes Tauler in my book titled Mystics After Modernism. There is no need for me to speak about that here. I would like, however, to tell you of another typical example, one that had a very great influence, lasting from the 12th and 13th on into the 15th century. The spiritual streams that were working during these centuries are in large measure to be traced to the events of which I now would like to speak. Let me first give you a sketch of the situation. The time when these events took place is round about the year 1200 CE. At that time, there were a great number of people, especially younger people, who felt within them the urge for higher knowledge, for a union with the spiritual world. Indeed, we might truthfully say, for a meeting with the gods. And the whole situation and condition of the times was such that very often it looked as though someone who was searching and striving in this way found their teacher almost by chance. In those days you could not find your teacher by means of books. It could only come about in an entirely personal way. But although it might look from without, like a chance happening, in reality deep connections of destiny were at work in the event. And it was so in the case of the neophyte about whom I want to tell you now. This neophyte found a teacher in a place in Central Europe through such an apparently chance event. He met with an older person, of whom he at once had the feeling, this person will be able to lead me farther in that search, which is the deepest impulse of my soul. And now, let me give you the gist of a conversation between them. I do not, of course, mean that only one such conversation took place. I am compressing several conversations into one. The neophyte spoke to the teacher and told him of his earnest desire to be able to see into the spiritual world. But it seemed to him, as though human nature as it was in that period, it was somewhere around the twelfth century, did not allow him to penetrate into spiritual worlds. Nevertheless, he said, I cannot but feel that in nature we have something that is the work, the creation of divine spiritual beings. When we look at what the objects of nature are in their deeper meaning, when we observe how the processes of nature take their course, we are bound to recognize that behind these creations stand the workings of divine spiritual beings. We cannot, however, fight our way through to them, The neophyte, who was a young person, somewhere between 25 and 28 or so, felt strongly and definitely that the person of that time, because of the particular kind of connection that the physical body has with the soul, cannot come through, that they have hindrances in themselves. The teacher began by putting him to the test. The teacher said to this young person, You have your eyes, you have your ears. Look with your eyes on the things of nature hear with your ears what goes on in nature. The spirit reveals itself through color and through tone, and as you look and listen, surely you cannot but feel how it reveals itself in these. Quote. The neophyte replied, quote, Yes, but when I use my eyes, when I look out into the world with all its color, then it is as though my eyes stop the color, as though the color suddenly turns numb and cold when it reaches my eye. When I listen with my ear to tones, it is as though the sound turns to stone in my ear. And these frozen colors and dead hard sounds will not let the spirit of nature through. But, said the teacher, is there not also revelation, the revelation of the religious life? In religion you are taught how gods made and fashioned the world, and how Christ entered into the evolution of time, And became a human being. What nature cannot give you, does not revelation give? And the neophyte said, Revelation does indeed speak powerfully to my heart, but I cannot comprehend it. I cannot connect what is out there in nature with what revelation says to me. It is impossible to bring the two into relation with one another. Just as I do not comprehend nature, JUST AS NATURE REVEALS NOTHING TO ME, NEITHER DO I COMPREHEND THE REVELATION OF RELIGION. Quote. AND THE TEACHER MADE THE ANSWER. Quote, I UNDERSTAND YOU WELL. IF YOU MUST SPEAK THUS, IF IT IS WITH YOUR HEART AND SOUL AS YOU SAY, THEN YOU CANNOT, AS YOU STAND IN THE WORLD TODAY, COMPREHEND EITHER NATURE OR REVELATION. FOR YOU LIVE IN THE BODY THAT HAS UNDERGONE THE FALL. Close quote. Such was the manner of speaking in those days, Continue quote. and the fallen body does not accord with the earthly environment in which you are living. This environment does not afford the conditions for using your senses and your feeling and understanding in such a way that you may behold in nature, and also in revelation, a light, an enlightenment that comes from the gods. If you are willing, I will lead you out of the nature of your earthly environment, which is simply unsuited to your being, I will lead you away from it and give you the opportunity of coming to a better understanding of both revelation and of nature. Close quote. And the teacher and the neophyte discussed together when this should take place. Then one day the teacher led the neophyte up a very high mountain, whence the surface of the earth, with its trees and flowers, could no longer be seen at all. As the pupil stood there with his teacher, all he could see below him was a kind of sea of cloud that completely covered the earth with which he was familiar. You know how this often is on such high mountains. Up there, the neophyte was far removed from the affairs of earth. At all events, the situation suggested this. He looked out into space above and saw great billowing clouds, and below him, too, could see only as it were a surging sea, composed entirely of cloud, morning mist, and the breath of morning in the air. Then the teacher began to speak to the neophyte. He spoke of the wide spaces of the worlds, of cosmic distances, and of how, when we gaze out into these far spaces in the nighttime, we see the stars shining forth from afar, As the teacher continued telling the neophyte many things, gradually the heart of the neophyte was removed far away from the earth and wholly given up to nature, to nature in the essential features of her existence. The preparation continued until the neophyte acquired a mood of soul which may be indicated by the following comparison. It was as though, and not just for a moment only, But for quite a long time, all that the neophyte had ever experienced during life on earth in this incarnation was something the neophyte had dreamt. The scene that was spread out before the neophyte, the surging waves of cloud, the wide sea of cloud, with here and there a drift rising up nearby like the crest of a wave, far spaces of the universe broken here and there by rising shapes of cloud and scarcely even that, for there was no more than a glimpse now and then of cloud forms in the far distances. This whole scene, showing so little variation, having so little content in comparison with the manifold variety of his experiences down below on the surface of the earth, now was nevertheless the content of the neophyte's daytime consciousness and everything the neophyte had ever experienced on earth seemed no more than the memory of a dream. Now, now, so it seemed, the neophyte had woken up. And as he gradually grew more and more awake, behold, from a cleft in a rock, which he had hitherto not noticed, a child came forth, a child of ten or eleven years old. The child made a strange impression upon the neophyte, for he at once recognized in the child his own self, in the tenth or eleventh year. What stood before him was, indeed, the spirit of his youth. You will easily guess, my dear friends, that this scene was one of the impulses that made me introduce into my title Mystery Dramas the figure of the spirit of Johannes' youth. It is the motif alone you should have in mind, certainly, not anything like photography, The mystery dramas are not a kind of Romana Clef where you only have to find the key and all is plain. The neophytes stood before the spirit of their youth, their very self. At twenty-five or twenty-eight years, the neophytes stood face to face with the spirit of their youth. And a conversation could take place, guided by the teacher but nevertheless actually taking place, between the neophytes and their own younger self. Such a conversation has unique character. You may see that for yourselves in the mystery dramas, from the style that is employed there. For when someone is face to face with the spirit of their own youth, and such a thing is always possible, then they give something of their riper understanding to the childlike ideas of the spirit of their youth and at the same time the spirit of the youth gives something of their freshness, their childishness, to what the person of older years possesses. Through the fact of this mutual interchange, the meeting becomes particularly fruitful. This conversation had the result that the neophytes came to understand revelation, the revelation that is given in religion. The conversation turned especially on Genesis, the beginning of the Tanakh or Old Testament, and on Christ becoming human. Under the guidance of the teacher, and because of the special kind of fruitfulness that the conversation possessed, it ended with the neophyte saying these words, Now I understand what spirit it is that works in Revelation. Only when we are transplanted, as it were, far away from the earthly into the etheric heights there to comprehend the Etheric Heights ideally with the help of the power of childhood, this power of childhood being projected into the later years of life. Only then do we understand revelation aright. And now I understand why it is that the gods have given revelation to us, for we are not able in the state in which we are on earth to see through the works of nature, and to discover behind them the working of the gods. Therefore the gods gave them the revelation, which is ordinarily quite incomprehensible in the mature years of life, but which can be understood when childhood comes to life again in the years of maturity. Thus it is really something abnormal to understand revelation. Close quote. All this made a powerful impression on the neophyte, and the impression remained. The neophyte could not forget it. The spirit of his youth vanished. The first phase of instruction was over. A second had now to come, and the second took its course in the following way. Once more the teacher led the neophyte forth, but this time on a different path. The teacher did not lead the neophyte up to the mountain top, but instead took him to a high mountain where the teacher knew there was a cave, through which they could pass to deep inner clefts, going down as far as the strata of the mines. Thus the neophyte was now with the teacher, not in the etheric heights, raised high above the earth, but in the depths, far down below the surface of the earth. For the consciousness of the neophytes It was once again as though all that they had ever experienced on earth passed by like a dream. For they were living down there in an environment in which their consciousness was particularly awakened. The neophytes perceived how they were themselves related to the depths of the earth. What took place here was actually nothing other than what lies behind such legends as are told, for example, of the Emperor Barbarossa. And his life in Kufhäuser, or of Charlemagne, and his life beneath a mountain near Salzburg. It was something of this nature that actually happened to the neophyte, although of course only for a short time. He experienced a life in the depths of the earth, far removed from our life on the surface. And this time the teacher was able, by speaking with the neophytes in a special way, to bring to their consciousness. The fact of their union, this time with the very depths of the earth far removed from our life on the surface of the earth, and now there came forth out of a wall an elderly person who was less easily recognizable to the neophytes than the spirit of the youth had been. Nevertheless, the neophytes had the feeling that after many years they would themselves become that elderly person that they had in fact before them their own self in future old age. Thereupon followed a similar conversation, this time between the pupil and himself as an elderly person, once more a conversation under the guidance of the teacher. What resulted from the second conversation was altogether different from what followed from the first. For now there began to arise within the neophytes a consciousness of their own physical organization. The neophytes began to follow the circulation of the blood in their body, moving with it as it coursed through all the single blood vessels. They began to follow also, in the same way, the nervous fibers. The neophytes could, moreover, feel as well how what is related to the human being out in the cosmos works into them. They felt the inworking of the vegetable kingdom, in its blossoming, in its rooting. They also felt how the mineral element in the earth is at work in the human organism. Down in the depths, they could feel how the forces of the earth, when brought into the human organism, circulate within us, how they create there, within us, themselves undergoing change, now destroying, now building up substances. They felt how the earth creates and weaves and has its being within us. And the result of this conversation was that when the elderly person had disappeared, the neophyte could say, Now the earth in which I have been incarnated has at last really spoken to me through your very being. A moment has come in my life when I have seen through the things and processes of nature, seen through them to the work of the gods, that is behind the things and processes of nature, quote. The teacher then let the neophytes out again onto the earth, and as he took leave of them, said, quote, Behold now, the individual of today and the earth of today are so little suited to one another that you have had to receive the revelation of religion from the spirit of your own youth, receiving it on the mountain high up above the earth, and... You have had to receive the revelation of nature deep down under the earth, in clefts that are far below the surface of the earth. And if you can now succeed in illuminating what your soul has felt in the hollow clefts of the earth, with the light your soul has brought with it from the mountain, then you will attain wisdom. Such was the path by which a deepening of the soul was brought about in those times. It was about the year 1200 CE, and this is how the soul became filled with wisdom. The neophytes of whom I have been telling you were thereby brought to initiation, and the neophytes now knew what power they must put forth in their soul to rouse to activity the light of the heights and the feeling of the depths. Further instruction was then given them by the teacher, Showing them how self-knowledge really always consists in this: we perceive on the one hand what is high up above the earth, and on the other hand what is deep down below the earth, and these two have to meet in our own inner human being. Then we can find within our own being the power of God the Creator. The initiation that I have described to you is a characteristic example of the initiations, which led afterward to what we may designate as, in quotes, medieval mysticism. It was a mysticism that sought for self-knowledge, but always with the idea of finding in the self the way to the divine. In later times this mysticism tended to become abstract. The concrete union with the external world, as it was given for these pupils who were carried up into the etheric heights and down into the depths of the earth, was no longer sought. Consequently, we do not find in it the same deep stirring of the soul, nor did the whole experience attain such a degree of intensity. But there was still the search and there was still the impulse to seek within for God, for divine creation, Fundamentally, all the seeking of Meister Eckhart, of Johannes Tauler, and of the later mystics whom I described in my book titled Mystics After Modernism, owed its impulse to these earlier medieval initiates. Those who worked faithfully in the sense of such medieval forms of initiation were, however, very much misunderstood. And it is by no means easy for us to find out in our day what the pupils of the medieval initiates were really like. It is, as you know, possible to come a considerable distance along the path into the spiritual world. Those who follow actively and resolutely what is given in my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds do find the way into the spiritual worlds. And everything that has been physically real in the past is, of course, only to be found now in the spiritual world Therefore, also, interludes, such as I have been describing, for there are no material documents that record such scenes. There are, however, regions of the spiritual world which are hard to access even for a very advanced stage of spiritual power. In order to do research in these regions, we have to have come to the point of actually having intercourse with the beings of the spiritual world in a quite simple, natural way as we have with our fellows on earth. Only when we have attained this much will we come to perceive and understand the connection between these initiates of whom I have told you and their pupils such a pupil, for example, as Raymond Lull who lived from 1235 to 1315 and who, according to what history can tell of him, leaves us full of doubts and questions. What you can learn of Raymond Lull by studying historical documents is indeed very scanty. But if you are able to enter into a personal relationship with Raymond Lull, you will allow me to use this expression, perhaps in the light of all I have been telling you blatantly in the last fourteen days, it will not now sound paradoxical. If you are able to do this, then he shows himself to you as someone quite different from what the historical documents make him out to be. For he shows himself to be preeminently a personality who, under the influence and inspiration of the very initiate of whom I have spoken to you, made the resolve as a neophyte to use all his power to bring about a renewal in his own time of the way that the mysteries of the world, of the Logos, had lived among people in bygone ages. And he set himself to do this by means of that self-knowledge for which, as I have been telling you, so powerful an impulse was working in the 12th and 13th centuries. It is in the light of his resolve that we should read his title Ars Magna. Raymond Lull said to himself, When a human speaks, then what we have in speech is really a microcosm. What we utter in speech is in truth the whole human being concentrated in the organs of speech. The secret and mystery of each single word is to be sought in the whole human being and therefore in the great world, in the cosmos. Close quote. And so, Raymond Lull came to see that we have to look for the secret of speech first of all in ourselves by diving down, as it were, from the mere speech organs into the whole organism of the human being and then into the cosmos. For the whole human organism can be explained and understood only out of the cosmos. Let us suppose, for example, we want to understand the true significance of the sound ah, as in father. The point is that the sound ah which comes about through the forming and shaping of the outgoing breath, depends on a certain posture or gesture of the etheric body, which you can easily learn to know today. Eurythmy will show it to you, for this attitude of the etheric body is carried over in eurythmy to the physical body and becomes the eurythmic movement for the sound ah. This was not by any means fully clear to Raymond Lull. With him it was all more of an intuitive divining. He did, however, come so far as to allow the inner attitude or gesture of the human being out into the cosmos and then to say, for example, if you look in the direction of the constellation of Leo and then in the constellation of Libra, the connection between the two lines of vision will give you Ah, Or again, say you turn your eyes in the direction of Saturn. Saturn stops your line of vision, gets in the way. And if Saturn stands in front, for example, of Aries, you have, as it were, to go around Aries with Saturn. Then you receive from out of the cosmos the feeling of, oh. Intuitive perceptions of this nature led Raymond Lull to find certain geometric figures, the points and sides of which he named with the letters of the alphabet. He was quite sure that when we experience an impulse to draw lines in the figures, diagonals, for instance, across a pentagon, uniting the five points A, B, C, D, E, in different ways, (see plate, 4, then we need to see in these lines different combinations of sounds, and these combinations of sounds expressed for him certain secrets of the universe, of the cosmos. Thus did Raymond Lull look for a kind of renaissance of the secrets of the Logos, as they were known and spoken of in the ancient mysteries. You will find all this totally misrepresented in the historical documents. When, however, we enter, little by little, as it were, into a personal relationship with Raymond Lull. Then we come to see how, through all these efforts, he was trying to find again the solution of the riddle of the cosmic word. And it is a fact that the pupils of the medieval initiates continued for several centuries to spend their lives in endeavors of this kind. It was an earnest and intensive striving, first to immerse ourselves in the human being, and then to come forth from the human being and rise up into the secrets of the cosmos. Thus did these wise persons, for we may truly call them so, seek to unite revelation with nature. They believed, and much of their belief was well founded, that in this way they could get behind the revelation of religion and get behind the revelation of nature for it was quite clear to them that we, human beings, as we now live on the earth, were destined and intended to become the fourth hierarchy, but that we have fallen from our true and proper nature, and we have become more deeply involved in physical existence than we should be. On account of this, we also lack the power to develop our souls and spirits correspondingly, and it is to such seekings, after knowledge, that we have to trace the rise of the Rosicrucians. A place of instruction of the Rosicrucians, of the first original Rosicrucians, the scene I have depicted to you today, the scene between the teacher and the neophyte, at first upon a high mountain and then down into deep clefts of the earth, emerged like a kind of temporal feta morgana, mirrored as vision, came again, as it were, like a ghost we find the scene mirrored as a vision there, as knowledge. And it taught the neophytes in that school to recognize how we have to attain two things by inner effort and striving if we would come to a true self-knowledge, if we would find again our right place on earth and be able at last to become in actual reality a member of the fourth hierarchy. For within the Rosicrucian school the possibility was given to recognize what it was that had taken place with the neophytes when they had seen before them in bodily form the spirit of their youth, namely, that their astral bodies, which were stronger at that moment than they otherwise ever are in life, had been loosened. It was in this loosening of the astral body that the neophyte had come to know the meaning and significance of revelation. And again what had taken place with the pupil in the depths of the earth, that too was made clear to the neophytes in the Rosicrucian school. This time the astral body was seen to have been drawn deep within, so that it was entirely contracted, and this enabled them to apprehend the mystery of their own inner being. And now, exercises were found within Rosicrucianism, comparatively simple exercises. Symbolic figures were put before the neophytes, to which they had to surrender their gymut in devotion and meditation. The force and power of which the soul became possessed through practicing devotion to these figures enabled them on the one hand to loosen their astral bodies, and become like the neophytes on the mountaintop, who were in the etheric heights, and on the other hand, through the compression, the cramping of their astral bodies, to become like the pupil in the clefts of the earth. And it was then possible, without the help as before of the external environment, simply through performing a powerful inner exercise to enter into the inner human being. I have given you here a picture of something to which I have made allusion in the preface to the new edition of my book, titled Mystic- Mystics After Modernism. I said there that we find in Meister Eckhart, in Johannes Tauler, in Nicholas of Cusa, and Valentin Weigel, a late product of a colossal human striving that preceded them. In this earlier striving in the spirit, this search for self knowledge, in connection on the one hand with revelation, and on the other hand with the elimination of nature, I wanted to bring this before you today as one of the currents that take their course in the so-called Dark Ages. So-called, for the fact is, the man of modern times has conjured darkness into the Middle Ages out of his own imagination. In reality, there were in those times many enlightened persons, But those who today consider themselves the most highly enlightened are incapable of understanding the light of these medieval searchers after truth, and consequently remain themselves in the dark. It is indeed quite characteristic of modern times that people take light for darkness and darkness for light. If, however, we are able to look into what lies, behind the literature of those earlier times, and to see that of which the literature gives more than the reflection, then we may perceive a powerful and lasting impression. Something of this I wanted to show you today. Tomorrow we will round out the picture. The end of Lecture 2